episode 75. The music from the telescreen stopped and a voice took over. Winston raised his head to listen. No bulletins from the front, however. It was merely a brief announcement from the Ministry of Plenty. In the preceding quarter, it appeared, the 10th three-year plan's quota for bootlaces had been overfilled by 98%. He examined the chess problem and set out the pieces. It was a tricky ending, involving a couple of knights. White to play and mate in two moves. Winston looked up at the portrait of Big Brother. White always wins, he thought, with a sort of cloudy mysticism. Always, without exception, it is so arranged. In no chess problem since the beginning of the world has Black ever won. Did it not symbolize the eternal, unvarying triumph of good over evil? The huge face gazed back at him, full of calm power. White always wins. You are warned to stand by for an important announcement at 1530. 1530. This is news of the highest importance. Take care not to miss it. 1530. The tinkling music struck up again. Winston's heart stirred. This was the bulletin from the front. Instinct told him it was bad news that was coming. All day, with little spurts of excitement, the thought of a smashing defeat in Africa had been in and out of his mind. He seemed actually to see the Eurasian army swarming across the never-broken frontier and pouring down into the tip of Africa like a column of ants. Why had it not been possible to outflank them in some way? The outline of the West African coast stood out vividly in his mind. He picked up the white knight and moved it across the board. There was the proper spot. Even while he saw the black horde racing southward, he saw another force mysteriously assembled, suddenly planted in their rear, cutting the communications by land and sea. He felt that by willing it, he was bringing that other force into existence. But it was necessary to act quickly. If they could get control of the whole of Africa, if they had airfields and submarine bases at the Cape, it would cut Oceania in two. It might mean anything. Defeat, breakdown, the redivision of the world, the destruction of the party. He drew a deep breath. An extraordinary medley of feeling. Well, but it was not a medley, exactly. Rather, it was successive layers of feeling, in which one could not say which layer was undermost, struggled inside him. The spasm passed. He put the white knight back in its place, but for the moment he could not settle down to serious study of the chess problem. His thoughts wandered again. Almost unconsciously, he traced with his finger in the dust on the table. Two plus two equals five. They can't get inside you, 
she had said. But they could get inside you. What happens to you here is forever, O'Brien had said. That was a true word. There were things, your own acts, from which you could never recover. Something was killed in your breast, burnt out, cauterized out. He had seen her. He had even spoken to her. There was no danger in it. He knew as though instinctively that they now took almost no interest in his doings. He could have arranged to meet her a second time if either of them had wanted to. Actually, it was by chance that they had met. It was in the park on a vile, biting day in March when the earth was like iron and all the grass seemed dead and there was not a bud anywhere except a few crocuses which had pushed themselves up to be dismembered by the wind. He was hurrying along with frozen hands and watering eyes when he saw her not ten meters away from him. It struck him at once that she had changed in some ill-defined way. They almost passed one another without a sign when he turned and followed her, not very eagerly. He knew that there was no danger. Nobody would take any interest in him. She did not speak. She walked obliquely away across the grass as though trying to get rid of him then seemed to resign herself to having him at her side. Presently, they were in among a clump of ragged, leafless shrubs, useless either for concealment or as protection from the wind. They halted. It was vilely cold. The wind whistled through the twigs and fretted the occasional dirty-looking crocuses. He put his arm around her waist. There was no telescreen, but there must be hidden microphones. Besides, they could be seen. But it did not matter. Nothing mattered. They could have laid down on the ground and done that if they had wanted to. His flesh froze with horror at the thought of it. She made no response whatever to the clasp of his arm. She did not even try to disengage herself. He knew now what had changed in her. Her face was sallower, and there was a long scar, partly hidden by the hair across her forehead and temple. But that was not the change. It was that her waist had grown thicker, and in a surprising way had stiffened. He remembered how once after the explosion of a rocket bomb he had helped to drag a corpse out of some ruins and had been astonished not only by the incredible weight of the thing but by its rigidity and awkwardness to handle which made it seem more like stone than flesh. Her body felt like that. It occurred to him that the texture of her skin would be quite different from what it had once been. He did not attempt to kiss her, nor did they speak. As they walked back across the grass, she looked directly at him for the first time. It was only a momentary glance, full of contempt and dislike. 
He wondered whether it was a disdain that came purely out of the past or whether it was inspired also by his bloated face and the water that the wind kept squeezing from his eyes. They sat down on two iron chairs, side by side, but not too close together. He saw that she was about to speak. She moved her clumsy shoe a few centimeters and deliberately crushed a twig. Her feet seemed to have grown broader, he noticed. I betrayed you, she said baldly. I betrayed you, he said. She gave him another quick look of dislike. Sometimes, she said, they threaten you with something. Something you can't stand up to, can't even think about. And then you say, don't do it to me, do it to somebody else, do it to so-and-so. And perhaps you might pretend afterwards that it was only a trick and that you just said it to make them stop and didn't really mean it. But that isn't true. At the time when it happens, you do mean it. You think there's no other way of saving yourself and you're quite ready to save yourself that way. You want it to happen to the other person. You don't give a damn what they suffer. All you care about is yourself. All you care about is yourself, he echoed. And after that, you don't feel the same toward the other person any longer. No, he said, you don't feel the same. There did not seem to be anything more to say. The wind plastered their thin overalls against their bodies. Almost at once, it became embarrassing to sit there in silence. Besides, it was too cold to keep still. She said something about catching her tube and stood up to go. We must meet again, he said. Yes, she said, we must meet again. <laughs>